We knew that, the world knew that, Lyndon B. Johnson knew that, Martin Luther King knew it when they enacted this law, but Roberts tries to play dumb and act like, you know, well, what, you know, uh, racism is done, you know? What could they possibly do to discriminate against black people in this era? Racism's been solved. We have a black president. And now looking back, it's clear that uh, removing that provision has made it much easier for intentionally discriminatory laws to pop up. And we saw the result of it right away. Like, people started passing new laws right away. Hi, I'm Neil Katyal, and welcome to Courtside, a podcast about the Supreme Court and what it means to you. I've argued 50 cases at the court and served as the federal government's top courtroom lawyer. But I want the court to come alive for you. Each week, I'm going to discuss a single Supreme Court case with one guest, someone who's not a lawyer and who can translate the case into plain English. Today's guest is the great John Legend, and we're going to talk about the case that gutted the Voting Rights Act, the 2013 decision in Shelby County versus Holder. The timing for our discussion is beyond magnificent, as I just found out hours ago that I won Moore versus Harper, a Supreme Court case I argued at the court a few months ago. Judge Michael Ludick has described the case as the most important case about our democracy ever. And fortunately, we won. The Supreme Court found our system of checks and balances meant that state legislatures can't do whatever they want to suppress or dilute or alter voting and elections. All of our episodes are posted over at neilcatial.substack.com, along with a bunch of bonus stuff. You can also support the show there or sign up for free so each episode of Courtside lands right in your email. That's neilcatial.substack.com. Each week, you'll get access as a subscriber to all sorts of information about the case. I've summarized the case in a three-pager, abridged the actual text of the decision, and provided the full decision. All of that is available to you as a subscriber. Each week, I'll begin with a bit of legal news and then turn to a discussion of that Supreme Court case. I'll then conclude with a softer discussion about creativity, performance under pressure, and how each of these guests goes about living their lives. There's a lot of legal news this week, and I want to focus on just two things. First, the plea arrangement Hunter Biden struck with the Justice Department. This is a pretty extraordinary thing. The Justice Department, which is after all part of the executive branch controlled by Joe Biden, went and prosecuted the president's own son. Hunter Biden agreed to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges and accept terms that would allow him to avoid prosecution on a different gun charge. Republicans are crying foul, claiming special treatment. I think it's really important to recognize that the prosecutor here wasn't AOC or Merrick Garland. The prosecutor's name was David Weiss. He was appointed by none other than Donald Trump. He's very well respected. He was the first assistant United States attorney in Delaware for many years, meaning the top career prosecutor, before getting the political appointment from Trump. In response to questions from House member Jim Jordan, Weiss in a letter last month said that he had, quote, ultimate authority over everything with respect to the Hunter Biden case. So if Republicans are upset with a Republican prosecutor, their complaint should be with that prosecutor, not with Merrick Garland or President Biden. 
Indeed, this investigation was just about as unbiased as an investigation can be. A Trump-appointed prosecutor was allowed to stay in his possession well after the new administration began and was given complete autonomy in his probe. If Joe Biden had actually wanted to interfere, he certainly could have. Instead, he made a point of staying as far away from this investigation as possible. And of course, this agreement struck between Hunter Biden and the Justice Department will have to be signed off on by a federal judge. Frankly, if anyone should complain, it seems to me it's Hunter Biden. First-time tax offenders like him almost never get prosecuted and certainly don't face jail time. And that's the same thing with the gun charge. So if anything, it seems to me he faced a harsh, not a lenient sentence. Indeed, you know, the Republican criticism of this sentence is interesting to me. On gun control, after all, it seems like the only way to rally Republican support for gun control laws is to charge a member of the Biden family with them. In the end, I think Hunter Biden has become such a politicized and demonized figure in politics that any charging decision would have been criticized as too lenient. I mean, prosecutors could have announced they were seeking life in prison for Hunter, and I think some Republicans would have been upset they didn't pursue the death penalty. So that's why, in the end, I think that the Hunter Biden plea and criticism is of much ado about nothing. The second thing I want to talk about is the elephant in the room, the end of the United States Supreme Court term. Now, the Supreme Court hears oral arguments between October and April. This year, I had the privilege of arguing cases on the first day of the term in October, as well as the very last day of the term in April. And indeed, I got to argue on Katanji Brown Jackson's very first day as a Supreme Court justice, which was so moving. Now, after the justices hear an oral argument in a given case, they go back to a conference room where they discuss the case and take a tentative vote. They then assign the opinion to be written by the senior most justice in the majority. Often that's the chief justice, Chief Justice Roberts. Sometimes it can be the second most senior justice, Justice Clarence Thomas. That justice may decide to keep the opinion for himself or decide to assign it to someone else. Now, if there's disagreement in the conference room, there will be a dissent that is assigned. A dissent is a written disagreement, and the senior most justice in the dissent will get to assign that case. And the justices then spend months polishing and revising their written decisions in draft form. And that's all the process that's been going on now for the last several months. But once they're done with the decision, they release it to the world for all of us to see. And the court does commit to releasing every decision from a given term by the end of June. So that's where we are. So we expect a spate of decisions this week on everything from affirmative action to student loans. All of that's a great segue into our conversation with John Legend. Just a quick note that I'm on the road this week and traveling without my beautiful handy microphone, so I might sound a little muffled. But as usual, thankfully, John Legend sounds great, as always. This week, we're going to be discussing a major 2013 Supreme Court decision called Shelby County versus Holder. It's no exaggeration to say this decision dramatically changed this country, setting back voting rights for generations and allowing for gravely discriminatory action to infect the 2016, 2018, 2020, and 2022 elections. 
I'm so pleased to have with us on Courtside my friend, my inspiration, John Legend. For anyone living under a rock and who doesn't know, John is one of the greatest musicians living today. I honestly can't count all his awards. I think it's like, John, 12 Grammys, a Tony, several Emmys, a Golden Globe, an Academy Award. Um, the latter happens to be my personal favorite because it, John was for your song Glory with Common. And as you know, every time I argue a Supreme Court case, I play Glory in my house. It's the last thing I do before I leave the house for court. It's so inspirational. It's so beautiful. It's so American. And you are truly a beautiful person and soul. And I knew when I was crafting the idea for this podcast, I knew I wanted to cover the Shelby County case. And I also knew that there was only one person to do it. You're not only the musician you are, you are a fighter for equality, especially in voting. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's so great to be here. And I'm so uh, honored that the song that we wrote for the film Selma has meant so much to you. When we think about, you know, who inspired that song for us, of course, it was Dr. Martin Luther King. And it was uh, Ava DuVernay's beautiful film commemorating his work around voting rights. And we also were writing the song in a time when there was um, a call from the streets of the United States to honor black lives, to uh, value black lives. And so we were not only uh, writing in response to the historical portrayal of Dr. King, but we were reacting directly to people fighting in the streets at that time for justice. Uh, we talk about Ferguson, we talk about um, the protests that were happening at the time we were writing the song. And as you well know, these fights, you know, they weren't all solved in 1965. These questions were not all resolved then, even though we made quite a lot of progress back then. Um, the forces of backlash, the forces of conservatism and retrenchment and really rolling back these rights are always at the ready trying to find ways to reverse the gains that we've made. And so we have to stay vigilant. And uh, that song was really about that sense of not feeling like we're done, <laughs> yeah. that we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. And more and more work to be done with every passing day. So mm -hmm. before before I get into uh, the Shelby County case itself, I want to just lay a little bit of the groundwork for the decision. So the case begins back in the 1960s at the height of the civil rights movement. And during this time, Jim Crow laws are rampant all through the South in states like Texas, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi. African-Americans are systematically being denied their right to vote. And the states and counties had weaponized a whole arsenal of different voter suppression tactics. And some were truly overt, like poll taxes, literacy tests, things like that. And others were really subtle, like changing the polling hours for elections in a minority neighborhood the day before the election, or moving the polling place across the street and not telling anyone. So in response, President Johnson pushes Congress to craft the Voting Rights Act. And the act has many provisions, but the two most powerful are sections 4B and section 5. And what these two provisions together say is that states with a history of racial discrimination must get federal court or federal Justice Department approval before changing their voting laws. 
And that means any change, whether it's a literacy test or moving a poll across the street. And that's because Congress knew there was no limit to the terrible ingenuity of the racists who were trying to block people from voting. And so that's what is passed in 1965. The Voting Rights Act is the most important piece of federal legislation to guarantee voting. And it was renewed several times in uh, 1970, 1975, 1982, and in 2006. And every time it's reauthorized, it's challenged in court by the Southern states. And time and again, the Supreme Court upholds the law, pointing to the 15th Amendment to the Constitution, which bans discrimination in voting and gives Congress the power to enforce that by appropriate legislation. So, you know, we thought for a long time that after the 2006 reauthorization, we were in good shape. We were on solid footing. And then President Barack Obama takes office. And I was tasked with representing the federal government and defending the act. It happened to be my fourth Supreme Court argument ever in 2009. That's because my boss, Elena Kagan, had a long confirmation process. And so instead of her as Solicitor General defending the act, it fell to me. And so I worked my tail off. It was, you know, we were worried. It was a bit hard to argue about the persistence of race discrimination three months after the nation elected its first black president. And so in any event, I threw myself in. I gave what is a pretty bang up good argument. And ultimately, you know, I actually made much of the argument looking, John, at Clarence Thomas, because I knew the voting, the history of voting, the history of Selma and the bridge, all of that was stuff he knew. And I just hoped to my heart, looking at him, I could get him to think about this. Um, well, I did win the constitutionality of the Voting Rights Act, but it was an eight to one decision with one justice dissenting Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas is deeply in the sunken place, and and anytime there's an opportunity to uh, to vote on behalf of rights for African Americans in this country, he votes the other way. Um, it is very sad and disappointing to watch, but he is very consistent about voting against the interests of African Americans in the court. Yeah, so that 2009 decision that's called Northwest Austin versus Holder is upholding the Voting Rights Act, except for Justice Thomas, but he's writing in dissent just for himself. He doesn't persuade anyone else at the time. And the eight justices said they're worried that the government is going to have to justify the coverage formula that covers these southern states because it hadn't been updated mm -hmm. in 50 years. But they say it's, we're gonna, it's constitutional for now. But that then sets up Shelby County. So um, at that, you know, maybe I'll just pass the baton to you, John. You know, if you could just kind of say in plain non-lawyerese, what's the court saying in Shelby County? What what did they decide? Well, in some ways, I think we were a victim of um, the success of Obama becoming president. In one way, it was scared a lot of people that too much change was happening in America, that, um, you know, states that had traditionally been red, like, you know, North Carolina, for instance, voted for Obama. There were a lot of folks who saw that kind of change and were trying to find any way to roll back that progress. And at the same time, I think it gave people like John Roberts uh, the ammunition to argue that racism had been solved in America. And so he had enough 
kind of ammunition in his mind to say, hey, these old formulas, there's a new South, you know, North Carolina voted for Obama, uh, things are changing, and we can't rely on these old formulas anymore to decide who has to pre-clear their uh, voting provisions. And so eventually, John Roberts basically says, these formulas don't work anymore in a new America, in an America that voted for Obama, in an America that should be well past the issue of racism. And I think essentially his quote was, the only way to fix racism is to not make race-based decisions. And um, he decided that, along with uh, a narrow majority in the court, that we would get rid of the pre-clearance provisions in the Voting Rights Act. And just so people understand what that means is the Voting Rights Act still protects people's voting rights, but the way to remedy laws that are discriminatory now is after the fact. It's it's after they've been enacted. You can sue. I, I'm on the board of the Legal Defense Fund of the NAACP. They're one, one of the uh, plaintiffs often in these suits. You can sue but it takes a lot longer, and the law's already in place when this happens. You may be able to get an injunction sometimes, but really the law's in place, and its effect is being felt in the voting public already. And so it's a lot harder to stop discriminatory laws because the preclearance provision made it so any change in these questionable counties that had a history of racist voting laws, any change would have to be cleared before it came into effect. But now, it went into effect and you could sue after the fact, but it was much more difficult to stop the law from having its bad effects. Man, that's beautiful. That's exactly right. So the Supreme Court in Shelby County in a five to four decision written by the Chief Justice says basically this whole pre-clearance regime is thrown out. The case doesn't concern the other part of the Voting Rights Act that you're pointing to, Section 2 which allows lawsuits to be done after the fact. But those lawsuits are really hard. They're really expensive. There's only a couple that could be brought every year. And even there, the Supreme Court has been tightening the standards to bring those cases in general. Now, we did have just recently uh, a new decision coming out of Alabama in which the Supreme Court, in a divided opinion, did find that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act was violated. Yes. That was a big surprise. <laughs> I'm on the, I'm on the uh, email listserv for all the board members at the Legal Defense Fund, and that was a nice email for us to get because these days we don't get a lot of wins in the Supreme Court for the side of voting rights and for the side of justice. And when we got that uh, notice from the team at Legal Defense Fund, it was quite a, a celebration that we finally got a win. Yeah. So I wasn't that surprised. In part, it was because my team was working hard on the case and they were awesome. Mm -hmm. And also, but the facts, right? Because in this case in Alabama, the state is 27% black and the legislature drew the districts. There are seven districts in Alabama and only one of them was majority black. And so it was actually a panel of very conservative court of appeals judges, uh, two appointed by President Trump that said, even this, like this just stinks to high heaven. And so, mm. you know, I'm glad very much to see that, but you're absolutely right to say Section 2, and, you know, the writers of the Voting Rights Act understood that. Section 2 was only for the extreme cases after the fact. It wasn't really going to get us what we needed to get. What 
I think a lot of people need to understand is that we got voting rights after the Civil War, but as you said, there were always these ways of kind of facially having race-neutral laws that were intended to disproportionately punish and, and exclude black people, even though the letter of the law was race-neutral. The application of the law and the intent of the law was to find any way, by hook or by crook, to exclude black people from voting. And so that's what regime we were under, and that's why the Voting Rights Act said, you know, we, we, we want to acknowledge the reality of how racism works, that sometimes the laws are facially race neutral, but their intent and their effect is uh, disproportionately felt by uh, people from the minority race. And so we knew that, the world knew that, Lyndon B. Johnson knew that, Martin Luther King knew it when they enacted this law, but Roberts tries to play dumb and act like, you know, well, what, you know, uh, racism is done, you know. What could they possibly do to discriminate against black people in this era? Racism's been solved. We have a black president. And now looking back, it's clear that uh, removing that provision has made it much easier for intentionally discriminatory laws to pop up. And we saw the result of it right away. Like, People started passing new laws right away, and all of their uh, intent was to suppress minority votes and make it harder for the left to win elections. Yeah, no, that's totally right. I mean, just hours after the Shelby County decision, Texas announces it's going to implement a really severe photo ID law that have been mm -hmm. previously blocked by the Justice Department under the Voting Rights Act, and state after state does that. And the Chief Justice says, you know, racism is done. You're exactly right. Um, and four justices say that's wrong, led by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She writes this dissent. I think it's maybe the best opinion she's ever written. It's certainly one of the best opinions any justice has ever written, but it is a dissent. And what she says is it's kind of crazy to throw out this act because the chief justice is saying there isn't racism because that just means that the act is working. She said, you know, I think a very memorable quote, she says, throwing out preclearance when it's worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. What a great quote. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, we miss her. <laughs> we miss yeah. her so much. Um, so... You know, given all of this, like, where does it leave you? Um, you know, given Shelby, the state of the country, I mean, do you have a hopeful outlook on the future of voting rights? I mean, you're invoking Dr. King a lot, a lot. And of course, he said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Is, is that how you feel right now? Well, it's interesting because uh, even though we've had over the last, you know, decade, a lot of new laws introduced to suppress the vote. I think those on the side of voting rights have done a good job of making people feel a sense of urgency, making people feel a sense of um, conviction, in part because people were trying to suppress our vote so much and using that as motivation to get people out to vote. And if you look at turnout in the 2020 election and even in the 2022 midterm election, turnout has been quite good. 
recently. Part of it's due to the increase in like mail-in voting and other uh, easier voting methods, early voting, et cetera, which obviously the conservatives are always trying to find ways to roll back lately. But I think all of these attacks on voting rights have had the effect of making people prize their voting rights even more and motivating them to get out to vote. And so in some ways, that's been you know a, a source for optimism and and comfort knowing that even, and maybe because of the fact that so many people are trying so hard to stop people from voting, folks are getting out there. So John, in addition to the felon disenfranchisement rules that you've been trying to change in state after state, I know you're doing so much more around voting. Could you talk a little about that work? Yeah. So some of it's working on folks who are returning citizens and, and want to get the right to vote like we did in Florida, but also sometimes it's um, fighting for um, fighting to roll back some of these rule changes that make it harder for people to vote or that dilute our democracy. So uh, I've been involved with fundraising and supporting the uh, effort by Eric Holder and others to uh, end gerrymandering or, or severely curtail gerrymandering that dilutes people's power to vote. I've been involved. Uh, I'm going to get involved in my home state of Ohio in the effort to make sure that the referendum law doesn't change to make it so you need a much higher threshold. And this law, if people don't know about it, they're trying to change Ohio state law to make it so that you need a 60% vote for the referendum only to make sure that people who are fighting for abortion rights can't uh, roll back Ohio's draconian laws outlawing abortion. So they know that the state legislature is so gerrymandered that it's not representing the will of the people in Ohio. And they know that if the people got their way, they would vote for abortion rights to be expanded in Ohio. And so they're changing the referendum law so that the threshold to get abortion rights passed would be higher. So they're deliberately changing democracy in Ohio explicitly to make sure that the people don't have their say on this contentious issue of voting of abortion rights in uh, Ohio. So these are the kinds of laws that people are passing. And a lot of times it's state legislatures, because they've been so heavily gerrymandered, which is why we got to work on gerrymandering consistently, places like Wisconsin and North Carolina and Ohio, which are fairly evenly divided states, have legislatures that are like super majorities often, uh, conservative super majorities, despite being evenly divided because of the way the districts are drawn. And that's a major way that um, voting power is being diluted. And what it's creating is these highly protected, insulated state legislatures that don't have to respond to the people because they're essentially not democratically elected anymore. Um, because they've been able to pick their own voters rather than the voters picking them. And so I think that may be the major issue of our time is the idea of uh, getting these state legislatures to be more representative of the people. And in quite a few major states, so much is happening because the legislators don't have any accountability toward the people. 
The irony of what's going on in Ohio, and I'm so glad you're fighting it, is that the Supreme Court, when it overruled Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs case, and we'll be talking about this later in the courtside podcast series, but the Supreme Court majority said, oh, this should be up to the states and to the people. And now when it goes to the states and the people, they're trying to pass these anti-democratic rules. So it's not actually up to the people. And when you have these heavily gerrymandered places, the state legislators don't represent the people. They're they're some kind of uh, screwed up, distorted uh, version of representative democracy that doesn't actually reflect the will of the people. And they're so insulated from voters' opinions that they don't have to be responsive to the people or accountable to the people. And so I think this is a major issue. Someone has a book called uh, Laboratories of Autocracy that people should check out that essentially talks about you know, how states are supposed to be laboratories of democracy, but they're becoming very, very distorted by gerrymandering and not representing the will of the people. And I'm so glad you brought up racial gerrymandering because the Supreme Court's decisions in this area have basically fueled the ability of states to just racially gerrymander in atrocious, atrocious ways. Um, yeah. And, and the Alabama case was only so extreme that even the conservatives had to say, uh, this is too much. But a lot of states have been getting away with some pretty bad gerrymanders. Um, so I came across the most amazing essay that you wrote in high school. There was an mm-hmm. essay contest. And mm-hmm. I guess the question was how you would impact black history in the years to come. Mm-hmm. And Here's what you said. This is almost frightening. Quote, I plan to use my social skills and my musical talents to be a positive role model for my fellow African-Americans. I envision a successful musical career that will allow me to obtain high visibility in the community. This, in turn, will put me in a position of great influence, which I will utilize in order to be an advocate for the advancement of Blacks in America. Boom. How did you know that? (laughs) Well, that was my vision for myself. I was 15 years old. I was a junior in high school. And I was, um, I had a sense of really what I wanted to do in life. I loved making music and I really wanted to make music for a living. I wanted to be successful at it. So that side of the dream was, you know, I was watching Star Search and the Grammys and watching, you know, my musical heroes on television and listening to them and wanting to be there, wanting to make music that the world would hear. And I wanted that for myself back then. And I also believed that it was going to be a pathway for me to have influence in the world. And uh, I had forgotten about that essay for a long time. And then my dad showed it to me, you know, a few years into my, uh, you know, recording career. He showed it to me and I was so moved, you know, and inspired by looking back at that and remembering the vision that I had for myself and then seeing that I was really living that vision. And uh, it's pretty amazing to see those words on the page and and know that my 15-year-old brain was already uh, thinking about what I would be able to do, um, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later. John, did that dream die or did you forget it a little bit for a while? Because you famously graduated and then went to a storied consulting firm for a while. Yeah, I did do that, but it didn't die, honestly. I I worked at Boston Consulting Group for three years, but I was 
making music during that time. I was trying to get a record deal during that time. I figured I would take that consulting job for like a year or two and I would get a record deal uh, soon enough because I had already by that time played on Lauren Hill's album in, while I was still in college. I had started working with some of the producers I, uh, I met through her um, during college and right after college. And I had been making a demo and playing live gigs. And so I figured my day job wasn't going to last long and I would get a record deal soon. It took longer than I thought it would. Um, I started looking for a record deal in earnest while I was a senior in college in 98 and 99. And I didn't get a deal until 2004. So it took about five or six years before this, you know, major goal of mine was achieved. But um, I was working toward it all that time and I didn't give up on music ever. Um, though there were, you know, a lot of times when I could have and I felt a sense of rejection and felt a sense of frustration, but I never gave up on it. And as I recall you telling me once, when you did decide to tell your senior partners at BCG that you were going to leave, I think they thought, don't do that, right? Well, you're going to make a mistake here. <laughs> Some of them did. Some of them were rooting for me. I, I had a mentor named Jim Lowry, uh, who was a senior partner there. And he had been passing my demo to uh, our clients at AOL Time Warner uh, and the music labels there. And... Uh, <laughs> So he believed in me and was rooting for me. And, you know, when you get to a certain point in um, consulting, they usually want you to go back to business school or, you know, some other pre-professional school and uh, and then come back after you've had a little more finishing. So that was the inflection point for me. I had been there for three years and either I was going to go to business school and, and come back after that or... I was going to go the path that I really wanted to go, which was to make music for a living. And so I left BCG. I worked part-time for one of our clients uh, who was a nonprofit that we had done a pro bono case for. I did that part-time, and I focused a lot more on music. And within uh, a couple years, I had a record deal. Amazing. So I want to return to living the the 15-year-old dream because one of the things you've been doing is really, and it's so moving to me, what you're doing on the reenfranchisement of incarcerated people. Mm-hmm. Um, you were one of the most important people on Amendment 4 in Florida, which ultimately passed and restored voting rights to a million and a half Floridians. Could you talk a little about that work that you're doing? Yeah, so a lot of our work um, is uh, about rethinking what justice looks like in America, what punishment and accountability looks like in America. We're the most incarcerated country in the world. And we at Free America, my organization, uh, are working on multiple angles on how to make America more free. And and one of those is by uh, decarcerating. So locking much fewer people up and uh, for less time and then making it so that when they get out, they have a real pathway to be reintegrated back into society. And we do that in multiple ways. One of them is through making sure they have a a vote because we believe that them being full citizens and participating in their local democracy is going to make them feel more connection to their community and make them less likely to reoffend, more likely to feel like they have a stake in what's happening in their 
community and, and in the country. But we also do things like uh, empowering them to be entrepreneurs by uh, giving people with great ideas funding and support uh, to uh, launch their business ideas or grow their business ideas to, to launch their nonprofits or grow them uh, to not only uh, create opportunity for themselves, but for other people who, and often they'll hire other people who have spent some time in prison or jail. Uh, so we look for multiple ways to reintegrate them back into society and make it less likely for them to reoffend because we want them to be full community members, full family members. And I have my own personal experience with family members who have been in prison or jail. And I know how hard it is to come out of that and, and work again and, and get an apartment again and, and live again and take care of your family. And I've seen it from multiple sides because, you know, I some of my uh, nephews, their father was locked up for a while. And you see how hard it is for uh, the father to come back and be a good father if they can't get a good job, if they can't do the things that will help them be a good father and take care of their kids and, and support their family, then they end up finding illegitimate ways to make money and they find unhealthy ways to participate in what's going on in the community. And so I know from personal experience how important it is for us to provide people opportunities to reintegrate. And voting rights is a big part of that, but it's also getting a job. It's uh, having access to capital, having access to uh, 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 housing and uh, all the other things that make life complete for people. John, it's so inspiring because some people who reached a level of success just forget and turn their back. And you've done the reverse. You're just opening your heart and your talents to trying to make it better and fix it. Um, I have two final questions for you. They're both about your writing process. Um, mm -hmm. You were an English major in college, and now you're one of the greatest songwriters and musicians of our time. And we happen to be discussing a Supreme Court decision, a written decision. So there's different kinds of writing. There's literary mm -hmm. writing, songwriting, there's legal writing. Um, mm -hmm. When you think about these categories, do they cross over? Do they differ? Do you think they can inform the others? Like, can you ever learn something from a Supreme Court decision in writing? And do you think a Supreme Court justice could learn from a song or a work of literature? Uh, well, I think we all can learn from each other, but we have to realize that when we're writing, we have to think about what the goal is of the writing. You know, part of it is storytelling. So to convey uh, emotion, to make it vivid, to make um, the stakes vivid, to make the uh, subject matter vivid for people. Part of it is to hopefully inspire people, convince people, move people. And then I think particularly when it comes to making music, part of it is we're creating something that's going to be memorialized on record and it's going to last forever. And we want it to last forever and, and be timeless and be meaningful, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. And if you're Ruth Bader Ginsburg or or you're Katanji Brown and you're writing um, either the uh, majority opinion or the dissent, you're writing for history. It's going to be remembered and um, make it count, you know, yeah. <laughs> make it memorable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that picks up basically on my last question, which is 
you know, this, these different audiences, you know, one audience you're talking about is that audience decades from now that'll listen mm-hmm. to your music or Supreme Court justice's opinion. But another is the audience kind of here and now, the present mm-hmm. living beings. And, you know, like, I think you just joked that all of me is going to be played at like every, uh, every wedding this summer, basically. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And like, uh, glory, you know, for me, just to bring it back full circle, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I was special prosecutor in the George Floyd murder and it was ugly. I mean, it was so scary and there were death threats and, you know, it was the first trial during COVID and it was just like an atrocious thing. And, you know, I and others on the team used glory. They used your music to give us strength, to give us sustenance. Um, and, do you think about that when you're writing? Like, do you, or are you surprised by kind of where the song ultimately goes um, and who it moves? Well, what's interesting about Gloria, what I love to say about that song is that we were fueled by the movement, not just Dr. King's movement, but by folks protesting for Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown. We were fueled by them. So, when they in turn are fueled by us, by our songs, when you're fueled by our songs, it's a circular relationship. We're getting the inspiration from the people who are marching, the people who are standing up, putting their lives on the line, putting themselves on the line. And then in turn, we create this art that provides inspiration for them to keep marching. And uh, I think that's a beautiful circle, you know, that keeps going. It, it never ends. I still see young people covering our song, uh, you know, particularly during either Black History Month or on uh, Martin Luther King's birthday. And I see people marching with it still, um, you know, almost 10 years after we wrote it. And it's the kind of song that I want to live forever. And like I said, it's going to keep that circle going of people marching, but also inspiring artists to keep making music. And I think it will live forever and be a beautiful song in its own right, but also inspire all of us and future generations. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for being the person you are. You are truly like, if I have a role model, it's you. I mean, you're just an incredible, (laughs) no, you're an incredible presence on this planet. And um, I'm so grateful for you spending a little time with us. Thank you, Neil. It's always great to talk with you and and to learn from you. So uh, hopefully lots of folks will listen to this and glean some of your wisdom. Stop over at neilcatiel.substack.com to support the show, and you'll find all the episodes, written pieces, and some bonus material. And you can sign up so you don't miss anything. That's neilcatiel.substack.com. The music for this show was composed by the artists Dawson Hollow and Ronnie Bar-Hadas. Production services are provided by J.E. Peterson and Tyler Morissette at Voltage. Thank you for listening, and I'll have a new episode of Courtside for you next week. Mm-hmm.